Magnus Podcast, episode 26. This is Breaking Bad Physics, Aristotle versus Heisenberg. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Do modern physicists fall into similar traps that Aristotle dealt with against the pre-Socratics, namely philosophical monism, philosophical pluralism, is everything just one thing? What about becoming, substantial change? All these questions and more are answered in today's episode of the Magnus Podcast with Dr. David Arias. We're going to sit in on his latest fellowship class on natural philosophy, and you don't want to miss it. To become a fellow with the Albertus Magnus Institute, sign up today. It's completely free. It always will be at magnusinstitute.org. Without further ado, let's jump in on Dr. Arias and his class. All right. Well, well, tonight in our in our third class, I want to build on what we've been talking about in our first two classes, and 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 hopefully tonight we'll we'll have a good opportunity to get to the the actual first principles of mobile being, the intrinsic first principles of mobile being that Aristotle lays out for us, uncovers for us, you might say, in the first book of the Physics. So I want to kind of pick up with some things that we talked about last time, build on those, then we'll, then we'll get to what Aristotle has to teach us about the first principles of mobile being, especially in chapter 7, uh, towards, the end of, towards the end of the lecture part of, of the class night. So just, just to kind of refresh our memories about things that we talked about last time, remember we looked at how Aristotle, he divides up the pre-Socratics who spoke as he puts it, naturally about nature or natural things, he divides them up into two camps, so to speak. And I, I just gave these names to the two camps since Aristotle doesn't give any names to the camps. So one of the camps was called ancient philosophical monism. The other camp is called ancient philosophical pluralism. And <clears throat> excuse me, according to the ancient philosophical monists, there's, there's one material substance which either gets more rarefied or gets more condensed. And, and through that happening, the ancient philosophical monists attempt to explain our experience of, of change, okay, especially of, of what we normally think of as substantial becoming. So, so Thales is, is someone who falls into this school, and he says by, by water getting more rarefied or more condensed, uh, he attempts to explain our experience of substantial becoming. Then by contrast, at the other school, the ancient philosophical pluralists, they try to explain our experience of substantial becoming through positing many material substances either being gathered together or being separated apart. And Democritus is, is a guy who falls into this camp, and he says that that. There are many atoms, an infinite number of atoms, in fact, that are out there. And, and he claims that these atoms, by being gathered together, 
some of them being gathered together, some of them being separated apart, uh, account for, let's say, the coming into being of Mr. Smith or the passing away of Mr. Smith. Now, as we, as we saw last time, both ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism deny, they actually deny uh, necessarily, all three of the givens from our sense experience that we talked about, all three of the givens about the natural world from our sense experience uh, that we talked about. What were those three givens? Well, again, they, these three givens are that the natural substances that are most known to us, like men, horses, oak trees, and so on, are individual substances, that these substances that are most known to us are really distinct in kind, and thirdly, that these substances that are most known to us, they, they come to be and they pass away, simply speaking, that they undergo substantial uh, change. So both ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism, they, they end up denying all three of these givens, and according to both these schools, the only sort of change that occurs in the natural world is accidental change. More specifically, according to these two schools of thought, only the accidental change known as locomotion or change of place occurs. You can see this very clearly in the case of Democritus, right? Democritus says that at the end of the day, the only change that occurs is the atoms moving around, right? They get rearranged, they move from being here to being there, and so on. Okay. Now, the fact that, a, uh, that, that uh, I'm going to call these positions APM and APP for short, Ancient Philosophical Monism and Ancient Philosophical Pluralism, the fact that APM and APP deny these three givens uh, from our sense experience implies that both of these positions are false. For any account of the principles of mobile being, which denies immediately known truths, given to us in our experience, is necessarily a false account of the principles of mobile being. Now, if we ask ourselves, what is it about these two schools which causes them to contradict these three immediately known truths, it's pretty easy to see that it's the fact that both of them state that the material which underlies substantial change of some already existing substance or substances is that's, that's what does it for them, huh? Okay. So, in other words, it's precisely in positing that there's some already existing material substance or substances which underlie the change that we, that we know to be substantial change or substantial becoming that these two camps necessarily deny these three givens from our sense experience. So, this raises an, an obvious question, and the question might be put this way. You might ask, well... Can't we simply deny that the material which underlies substantial becoming or substantial change is some already existing substance or substances? Can't we just deny that? And in so doing, save our, uh, save our sense experience, save what's given to us in our sense experience, save these three givens from our sense experience. Wouldn't that be a natural rebuttal to uh, both APM and APP? Well, Perhaps not so fast. Okay, why not? Well, as soon as we attempt to do just this, the ancient problem of becoming rears its ugly head. Okay, what do I mean by the problem of becoming? Well, 
Here's one way to, to formulate it. This is one way to put it. Whenever this substance of this kind, whatever it happens to be, becomes this other substance of this other kind, okay, whenever something like Mr. Smith becomes, you know, this corpse, we all grant that some material changes from being this substance, let's say Mr. Smith, to being this other substance, the corpse of Mr. Smith, right? Right, we all, we all grant that, okay? Now here's the rub. This material that, that underlies every substantial becoming that we might point out is either a non-substance or a substance. Those are the only two possibilities. Either the material that underlies substantial becoming is a non-substance or it's a substance. But guess what? According to the problem of becoming, this material cannot be a non-substance. Why not? Well, if it were, then a non-substance would become a substance, and therefore it would be true to say that a non-substance is a substance. But that's absurd. Okay, let me try to flesh that out a little bit. Let's take some everyday examples. Let's say you take, you know, butter out of the fridge and you put it on the counter. What happens to the butter? It becomes soft, right? Now, can't you say this? You can say the butter becomes soft. And after that change is over and done with, you can say the butter is soft, right? The butter becomes soft. And then it's true to say the butter is soft. If you put water in your tea kettle and you warm it up, you heat up the water, the water becomes hot. At the end of the change, you can say, the water is hot. Well, if the material that underlies substantial change is a non-substance, then you can say, the non-substance becomes substance. And at the end of that change, you should be able to say, the non, you should be able to say non-substance is substance. But if I've ever heard a contradiction, that's one, right? That's a contradiction right there. Non-substance is substance. Okay, so that can't be. Furthermore, if the material that underlied substantial change were a non-substance, then the material would really be nothing at all, for it would neither be a substance nor an accident. It can't be an accident, because accidents can only exist if they inhere in substance. But if what underlies substantial change is a non-substance, well, then it's neither substance nor an accident, and hence, we would be forced to posit a becoming which has nothing that underlies it. Okay, but a becoming in which there is nothing which becomes is impossible. That's a contradiction in terms too. So it should be clear to us that the material in question cannot be a non-substance, or at least so argues the problem of becoming. But non-substance and substance are opposed as contradictories, aren't they? Indeed, they are. So if the material in question that underlies a substantial becoming is not a non-substance, then it must be some substance or substances. But if that's so, then we're back to where we started. That is, we're intellectually stuck, it seems, with either ancient philosophical monism or ancient philosophical pluralism. Seems like there's no way out. Yet maybe there is a way out of this mess. Perhaps modern science will be our salvation. Have the moderns, perchance, found a way to escape this nasty dilemma posed by the ancient problem of becoming? 
Surely, you might say, the subtleties of particle theory can assist us here, right? Well, let's let some of the notable modern uh, physicists, some of the most no notable modern physicists speak for themselves. And here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys a number of texts from some of the most notable modern physicists on precisely uh, these issues. In an address given in the year 1948 entitled Fundamental Problems of Present-Day Atomic Physics, Werner Heisenberg, the great 20th century physicist, he describes the state of atomic physics in the following words. Here's the quote. If we compare the present state of atomic physics with that of 150 years ago, we can immediately say that our modern views are much closer to the fundamental aim of atomic theory, which was an explanation of nature based on one homogeneous substance. In place of the hundred-odd independent basic chemical substances, we now have only three, which should be more accurately called three fundamental forms of matter, whose atoms we name electrons, protons, and neutrons. All matter, dead or living, consists of these three kinds of elementary particles and of nothing else. Qualitative differences are caused by the different arrangements and relative positions of these three basic units. The multiplicity of possible phenomena finds its reflection in the multiplicity of mathematical structures which can be realized with these three basic forms of being. Close quote. Now it seems to me that here Heisenberg makes uh, two note, or he makes two uh, main points that we should that we should note. First, he explicitly tells us what the aim or the end of atomic theory as such is. As he puts it, this part of physics attempts to explain all natural things, quote, based on one homogeneous substance. In other words, atomic theory is looking for or attempting to discover the first substance from which all natural substances come to be. And this should make it clear that this modern approach to natural substances has precisely the same general aim or end as do the pre-Socratics. In other words, both the moderns and the pre-Socratics are attempting to discover the principles of mobile being. Now, the second note that we can make here is, is this. Heisenberg tells us that atomic theory is seemingly close to achieving its aim insofar as it's discovered already what he calls three elementary particles, the electron, the proton, and the neutron, which he claims are the sole composing parts of all natural substances. Remember, he says quite determinately that, quote, all matter, dead or living, consists of these three kinds of element elementary particles and of nothing else. What this means, of course, is that according to Heisenberg, every man every horse, every oak tree, and every other natural substance, for that matter, is essentially nothing more than a congregation of electrons, protons, and neutrons. What, what then explains the differences between men, horses, oak trees, and other kinds of natural substances? According to Heisenberg, these differences are explained by differences in the arrangements and relative positions of these three basic units, as he puts it. From this, I think, I think you can see that it's quite easy to, to grasp or, or to spot a kind of great similarity between this position advocated by Heisenberg 
and the positions of Empedocles, Democritus, and Anaxagoras. Now, some years later, in, in his work called Physics and Philosophy, which is his collection of Gifford lectures, it's a very worthwhile book uh, to read, Physics and Philosophy, Heisenberg adds to some of the claims which he made in, in that first text that I read. Here's what he says. This is a little bit longer, so please bear with me. He says, uh, besides the three fundamental building stones of matter, electron, proton, and neutron, new elementary particles have been found which can be created in these processes of highest energies and disappear again after a short time. The new particles have similar properties as the old ones, except for their stability. Even the most stable ones have lifetimes of roughly only a millionth part of a second, and the lifetimes of others are even a thousand times smaller. At the present time, about 25 different new elementary particles are known. The most recent one is the negative proton. He continues, These results seem at first to lead away from the idea of the unity of matter, since the number of fundamental units of matter seems to have again increased to values comparable to the number of different chemical elements. But this would not be a proper interpretation. The experiments have at the same time shown that the particles can be created from other particles. Actually, the experiments have shown the complete, mut the complete mutability of matter. All the elementary particles can, at sufficiently high energies, be transmuted into other particles, or they can be simply created from kinetic energy and can be annihilated into energy, for instance, into radiation. Therefore, we have here actually the final proof for the unity of matter. All the elementary particles are made of the same substance, which we may call energy or universal matter. They are just forms in which matter can appear." Close quote. Again, uh, from this text, it seems proper to note uh, two principal points. First, Heisenberg states that physicists know that there exist many more kinds of elementary particles in addition to what he before called uh, the three fundamental building stones of matter, the electron, the proton, and the neutron. The existence of these other kinds of elementary particles might lead one, says Heisenberg, to think that atomic theory has actually moved farther away from its from its end or aim. But, says Heisenberg, in addition to the discovery of these new particles, these new kinds of particles, physicists have also discovered that both these new kinds of particles and what he calls the three fundamental building stones of matter are able to be, to be resolved into energy and to be produced from energy. Hence, and this is the second point, Heisenberg claims that these facts lead us to the conclusion that, to quote him again, quote, all the elementary particles are made of the same substance, which we may call energy or universal matter. They are just forms in which matter can appear, close quote. In other words, the fact that all of the fundamental particles can both be resolved into energy and produced from it shows, according to Heisenberg, that all these fundamental particles are essentially just different forms of the same basic substance, namely energy. Now here's one more text taken from that same work by Heisenberg, Physics and Philosophy, which manifests this last point even more clearly. Here's what he says, quote, 
In the philosophy of Democritus, all atoms consist of the same substance, if the word substance is to be applied here at all. The elementary particles in modern physics carry a mass in the same limited sense in which they have other properties. Since mass and energy are, according to the theory of relativ relativity, essentially the same concepts, we may say that all elementary particles consist of energy. This could be interpreted as defining energy as the primary substance of the world. It has indeed the essential property belonging to the term substance, that it is conserved. Energy is in fact that which moves. It may be called the primary cause of all change, and energy can be transformed into matter or heat or light. Close quote. Here I think it's, it's evident that Heisenberg is conceiving of energy as the most basic substance, what he calls the primary substance of the world. Okay, so he says it's the most basic substance in the natural world. And from this one substance, maintains Heisenberg, all the fundamental particles come to be. It seems to me quite easy to see here a great similarity between this aspect of Heisenberg's position and the ancient position of Thales. For just as Thales maintains that all things come to be from one substance, i.e. water, so Heisenberg maintains that all things come to be from one substance, i.e. energy. Indeed, this likeness between the position of Thales and the position of Heisenberg becomes all the more striking if one considers what Albert Einstein and Leopold Infeld have to say regarding the relationship between what they call matter and field. And here's, here's, here's a quote from them. This is the second to last big quote I'm going to give you guys, okay? So Einstein and, and, and Infeld, they say, we have two realities, matter and field. From the relativity theory, we know that matter represents vast stores of energy and that energy represents matter. We cannot in this way distinguish qualitatively between matter and field, since the distinction between mass and energy is not a qualitative one. By far, the greatest part of energy is concentrated in matter. But the field surrounding the particle also represents energy, though in an incomparably smaller quantity. We could therefore say, Matter is where the concentration of energy is great, field where the concentration of energy is small. But if this is the case, then the difference between matter and field is a quantitative rather than a qualitative one. There is no sense in regarding matter and field as two qualities quite different from each other. We cannot imagine a definite surface separating distinctly field and matter." Close quote. What are, what are we to make of these texts from Heisenberg, Einstein, and Infeld? Well, here's one very insightful interpretation which comes from the, the Thomist philosopher, Richard Cannell. And this, by the way, is taken from this quote I'm about to give you. This is the last quote I'm going to give you. It's, it's taken from his book called Matter and Becoming. It's a very worthwhile book. I think it's, a, it's an excellent book on natural philosophy. He relates what some of the modern physicists uh, have said to the positions of the ancients, as I've just done. In fact, I've 
I've, I've borrowed uh, significantly from from uh, what he has said in uh, what I gave you guys before and in what I'm going to give you guys uh, in a second. So that work, Matter and Becoming, again, it's a very good book, worth owning for sure. Now, here's what he has to say. Here's his reading of these different positions of the, of the modern physicists. He says, quote, Perhaps it should be noted that the contemporary view of becoming in a certain way combines both of the basic notions of the Greeks. For although elementary particles are held to consist of energy, the superior or complex entities are thought to be constituted by the combining of elementary particles into atoms and molecules. Macroscopic bodies are aggregates or collections of molecules. Molecules are combinations of atoms. Atoms are combinations of elementary particles. And elementary particles are concentrated energy. In other words, material bodies are the result of two kinds of accidental becoming. Therefore, according to the modern view, things are accidental wholes, which come to be from existing substances by a process of rarefaction and condensation, together with combination and separation. Close quote. So, in other words, it seems to me that, that, that Cannell is saying here that rather than providing us with some third alternative to ancient philosophical monism, and ancient philosophical pluralism, the moderns, okay, these great modern physicists, who really are great modern physicists, either knowingly or unknowingly, have actually united both of the pre-Socratic schools of thought, and in doing so, they have utterly failed to escape the ancient problem of becoming. Okay, now let's let's stop there for a second and just just try to appreciate what what I think Richard Cannell is getting at. I think what he's saying is basically this. He's saying, according to the moderns, you have this most fundamental substance. Let's call it energy. And by energy being concentrated either more or less, you get, as a result, different elementary particles, right? Different subatomic particles. And then by certain combinations of those subatomic particles, you get different sorts of atoms. And then through combinations of different sorts of atoms, you get different molecules. And then from the combinations of different molecules, you get, you get larger, uh, more complex holes, and so on. And so you can see that what's going on here, at least according to Cannell's interpretation, is that the, the moderns are accounting for the coming to be and the passing away of these fundamental particles by basically uh, employing ancient philosophical monism, right? They're basically thinking in terms of that school of thought. And then once they have those elementary particles, then they're explaining the coming into being and the passing away of macroscopic bodies like men and horses and oak trees and other such things through employing ancient philosophical pluralism. So they're, in effect, combining both of these schools of thought that the pre-Socratics have, have given to us. So if we, if we look to the moderns as our kind of hope, you know, if we, if we look to them in, in a hope of, 
of escaping from the problem of becoming, as I formulated it for you guys, they offer us no hope at all, right? They are incapable of aiding us in escaping from the problem of becoming. Okay, so here's the question. So if, the, if modern science is incapable of getting us out of the problem of becoming, to whom can we turn for help? Well, let's turn to the philosopher himself. Let's turn to Aristotle. What does Aristotle have to say about these matters? Well, it seems to me that the first thing that he points out to us, and this is to go back to something that we, we barely touched upon right at the end of last class, is this. He says, he says, first, what we need to do is we need to look to what ancient philosophical monism in ancient philosophical pluralism, APM and APP, what they, he, he says, look to what they commonly teach. Because there is most likely a lot of truth to be found precisely there. Now, we observed last class that these two schools of thought commonly teach that there are three principles which account for every becoming, namely, some material and two opposed principles, which are successively in that material that they posit. So, for example, Thales, as you know, he posits water as the material, and then he says rarefaction and condensation are the two opposed principles which are successively in water. Water is first rarefied, and then later it is condensed. In a similar manner, Democritus posits atoms, as material. And then congregation and segregation, or congregation and separation, gathering and, and scattering, okay, those are the two opposed principles which are successively in the atoms. First the atoms are gathered together, and then after that they're separated. Okay, so Aristotle tells us if we look there to what these two positions commonly teach, we will most likely find truth. Okay. Thus, as Aristotle begins his consideration of what the principles of becoming are, and how many such principles there are, I think he wants us to keep in mind what we have gleaned as the common teaching of the pre-Socratics, who spoke naturally about nature, namely, some material plus two opposed principles, which are successively in that material. If we keep that in mind, we'll have in our minds a total of three principles, right? Matter plus two opposed principles. Okay, so with all that as, as background, now let's look at some things that Aristotle teaches us in chapter 7 from book 1 of the Physics. And I really think that it's in this chapter that Aristotle hits some very serious natural philosophical pay dirt. Okay, this is really where the rubber hits the road. And, and he helps us to, to see, in a very deep way, what the first intrinsic principles of ens mobile, mobile being, really are. Okay, so in chapter 7, Aristotle examines the principles which are found in every becoming, okay, both accidental becoming and substantial becoming, and then he focuses his attention 
on the natures of the principles found in every substantial becoming. And Aristotle does this in a very step-by-step -step manner. And we won't be going through every single one of the steps that he goes through, but I, I hope to hit upon at least some of the main ones. So Aristotle approaches the principles that are common to every becoming by first attending to or focusing on our speech about a particular instance of becoming. He says, imagine a, a certain instance of change, and this is the instance of change or the example of change that he brings up. He says, imagine you have someone who becomes musical. Let's say you have little Johnny who, who's not musical at all. Okay, and his parents send him for, uh, for piano lessons. Okay, so little Johnny goes from being unmusical to being musical. He goes from not having the art of music in his soul to having that art of music. If we think of that example of, of accidental change or accidental becoming, Aristotle tells us this. He says, there are a number of ways in which we in our speech can describe that change that occurs in little Johnny. Here are three such ways, and these are three sentences that he lays out in chapter 7. He says, number one, the man becomes musical. That's one way to describe the change. Number two, the unmusical becomes musical. Number three, the unmusical man becomes a musical man. Again, the man becomes musical, the unmusical becomes musical, and the unmusical man becomes a musical man. Now, let's, let's focus on those sentences for a little bit. If, if you look at those sentences, almost in a, in a certain sense, just grammatically, you notice that there are three important terms found in them, if we kind of focus on all three together or if you just focus on the third. There's man, okay, the subject of the sentence, right? And man is at first unmusical, and then later he's musical. Okay, so the man changes from being unmusical to being musical. Now, if, if you look at the first sentence, the man becomes musical, and you look at the subject of that sentence, man, isn't it true to say that that subject of that sentence survives the change? He's there before the change starts. He's there during the change. He's there after the change is over and done with. Okay, So the subject of that sentence, you might say, is actually the subject of the change itself, right? Little Johnny. Little Johnny is there before the change, during the change, after the change. He's the one that undergoes the change, right? Look at the, the, the look at the second sentence. The unmusical becomes musical. Is that characteristic of being unmusical? Is that there after the change is over and done with? Does being unmusical survive the change? No, it doesn't, right? It can't. Why not? Because no one can be both musical and unmusical at the same time in the same way. Okay, so once little Johnny or whomever becomes musical, he's no longer unmusical. So being unmusical, you might say, that that is lost. That ceases to be in some way. Okay, once 
the change is, is over and done with. Okay, once the change has come to its has 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 come to an end. Okay, and then if you look at the third sentence, you see the fuller picture, it seems to me. At the beginning of the change, you have the subject of the change, man, who lacks the art of music. And then at the end of the change, you have that very same subject, that same man. But now, in place of the lack of the art of music that was in him before, now there is the art of music. So the man goes from lacking to having in himself, in his soul, you might say, the art of music. So what Aristotle is showing to us, it seems to me, through attending to our, our speech about this particular example of becoming, is he's showing to us that in this instance of becoming, at least, there are three things. There are three, you might say, principles of this change, of this becoming. There's the subject that undergoes the change. There's what we might call a privation or a lack. Okay. Here it's the lack of the art of music. And then there is that which is opposed to the lack or the privation, huh? In this case, the art of music. Commonly, these three principles are called subject or matter, privation or lack, and then the principle that's opposed to privation or lack is called form. Now, you, sh you should see here that Aristotle has just shown us that we're dealing with two opposed principles, unmusical and musical, privation and form, which are successively in a subject, or in what you might call, maybe in a more extended sense of the term, a matter, right? Little Johnny, or the man who changes from being unmusical to musical. Here, here we see something very much like what the pre-Socratics commonly taught. Okay, now Aristotle goes farther after he attends to how we speak about change, he then looks more generally at accidental change as a reality, at accidental becoming as a reality. And he says, if you pay attention to every accidental becoming out there in the world, you can see that in every accidental becoming, in every accidental change, there's some subject which undergoes the change, right? There's something that becomes. What is that something? It's always a substance or some group of substances, right? And you find that substance always goes from lacking to having in itself some positive uh, perfection, right? Some actuality, some what you might call form, okay? Think of any everyday example that you want. Take this example. Let's say, you know, I find one of my little kids playing with, with Play-Doh. So he opens up the can of Play-Doh. He dumps out the, the Play-Doh from the can. Let's say it's a new can. Play-Doh always has that cylindrical shape right out of the can, right? Okay, now he starts molding the Play-Doh. Let's say he starts, you know, pushing it down and rolling it around on the table, giving to it the shape of a sphere, well, the Plato goes from lacking to having the shape of a sphere. There you find 
you find these very same three principles that Aristotle has talked about. You find some subject or some material, the Plato, and you find a lack of the shape of a sphere that's in it at first, and then the shape of a sphere that is in it after the fact. So you find subject or matter, privation, and form. These same three principles that he just illustrated to us in the man becoming musical example. Okay, so in every accidental change, in every accidental becoming, I should say, there are three principles that are operative, matter, privation, and form. Now Aristotle turns his attention to substantial change. And one of the first things that he does in chapter 7 is he makes it clear to us that in substantial changes, there really is some sort of material that underlies the change from beginning to end, or some sort of subject that underlies the change from beginning to end. If you have your book with you, this comes up on page 12, or the, the line number is 190B, right around 2. And here's what he says. But it would become apparent by looking into it that substances and whatever else are simply be and whatever else are simply beings also come to be from something underlying. So here he's saying if, if you look into it, if you pay attention to the natural world, you'll see that substances they come to be from something underlying, from some material. Okay, now here's here's his evidence. He says, For there is always what underlies from which what comes to be comes to be as plants and animals come to be from seed. So he says, the fact that plants and animals come to be from seed is a sign, an indication, that there is some material that underlies that substantial change, whereby a plant or an animal comes into existence. And then he goes on in the next paragraph to, to offer yet more evidence for this. Okay, we won't look at that in detail if you want to come back to that in the, in the question and answer part, in the dis discussion part of the, of the class, we can definitely do that. But let's just focus on what he has to say about plants and animals coming to be uh, from seeds. I think what he's pointing out there is, is something like this. At least part of it seems to come to this. He's, he's saying, well, look, in order to get, in order to get let's say, a human, a human person, in order for a human person to come into being, what do you need? Well, you need human reproductive cells, right? You can't get a human person from an acorn or from an apple seed or something else, but you need certain determinant materials or, or, sub, or more specifically substances that are there beforehand that kind of have the nature of seeds. Okay, and, and that's an indication that there's something that's within those reproductive cells which is later within the human person. Or maybe another way to put it would be to say that the fact that human persons only come to be from human reproductive cells or from the things in those human reproductive cells is an indication that in order for the human being to come to be, it relies upon some material stuff that is in those 
reproductive cells in those substances, huh? And you could make a similar case, you know, looking at something like uh, an oak tree coming to be from an acorn or an apple tree coming to be from an apple seed or any other case uh, that you want to point out. Okay, so he's basically pointing out that there's a kind of material continuity between the human reproductive cells and the human person that comes to be uh, from them, and so on with other cases. Now notice this. Here he's just showing us, he's just manifesting to us, that there is some material that underlies substantial becoming. Has he told us what that material consists in yet? Has he told us what its nature is yet? No. Right now he's just establishing the fact that there is some material that underlies every substantial becoming. If we grant him that, and I, and I think we, we all would readily grant him that, all the pre-Socratics would readily grant him that, that there's some material that underlies substantial becoming, then the next question is, well, what is the nature of that material? And this is really the $50 million question, right? What is it? He shows us, doesn't he, in chapter 7? But before he shows us the nature of this material, he tells us how we're going to come to know the nature of this material that underlies substantial becoming. Let's go back to the text. This comes up on page 13 in the very last paragraph, or line 191, A, right around 7. 191, A7. So here, speaking of the the, the material that underlies every substantial becoming, he says this. The underlying nature, however, is scientifically knowable according to proportion or analogy. For as bronze is to statue, or as timber is to bed, or as material in the formless before it takes on form is to whatever else has form, so is this underlying nature to substance and this something and a being. Okay. There he's put it uh, very succinctly, and he's not wasting any words there. <laughs> so we have to try to unpack what he's given us, but he's, he's actually given us quite a bit, I think. And St. Thomas in his commentary uh, helps us to, to think out the, the kind of fuller picture okay, that Aristotle has, has presented us with in a kind of seed form here. So Aristotle's telling us here, I think, that if we're to come to know the nature of the material that underlies substantial becoming, we have to use an analogy. We have to approach it by way of analogy. And Aristotle gives us that analogy. Okay, here's one of the analogies he gives, or one of the proportions, to put it in a more uh, mathematical, to use a more mathematical term. Here's one of the proportions that he gives us. He says, as bronze is to statue, so is the underlying nature to substance. As bronze is to statue, so is the underlying nature to substance. Okay, what are we supposed to get from that? Well, it seems to me that one thing that we're supposed to get from that is this. You say that uh, bronze is, and here we're thinking of bronze that doesn't have a particular shape yet. Let's say we're, we're fashioning the a bronze statue of Socrates, 
Okay, so, so bronze is what is able to be a particular statue, let's say a statue of Socrates. Okay, so just as bronze is what is able to be a statue, so is this underlying nature, so is this material that underlies substantial becoming, what is able to be a substance. Okay. That's the first point to make, it seems to me. So that's a similarity between bronze and this underlying nature. Bronze is what is able to be a statue. This underlying nature is what is able to be a substance. But as all of you liberally, liberally educated folks know, when you have a proportion, you don't want to think that, what is, that whatever is true about one side of that proportion is true about the other side. Think of this as an example. Isn't it true that as 2 is to 6, so is 3 to 9? True or false? True. That's true, right? As 2 is to 6, so is 3 to 9. 2 goes into 6 three times, 3 goes into 9 three times. So we can say as 2 is to 6, so is 3 to 9. Okay, well, when I say 2 goes into 6 three times and 3 goes into 9 three times, there I'm pointing out a similarity or a sameness on, on both sides of that proportion, right? But at the same time, it seems to me that there might be at least one difference or maybe some differences between what you have on the one side of the proportion and what you have on the other side of the proportion. As 2 is to 6, so is 3 to 9. That's a good proportion. It's a true proportion. But... Notice, on the one side, you have 2 and 6. Okay, they're, they're even numbers. On the other side, you have 3 and 9. They're odd numbers. So you wouldn't want to say that, well, because 2 and 6 are even numbers, therefore 3 and 9 have to be even numbers. No, that doesn't follow. Okay, just because there's some sameness or some similarity between what you have on both sides of the proportion, it doesn't follow that everything is true about one side is true about the other. And the same goes for this proportion or analogy that Aristotle is giving us here. Okay, bronze is to statue as underlying nature is to substance, inasmuch as bronze is what is able to be statue, and underlying nature is what is able to be substance. But here's a very profound difference that I think he wants us to see between the one side of the proportion and the other. When you think about bronze, bronze has the it has the ability to be a statue, right? Now, what possesses that ability? What, possessive, what, what possesses that passive potency to be a statue? The bronze does, right? The ability to be a statue inheres in, you might say, the bronze. It belongs to the bronze. That's a characteristic that belongs to the bronze, or a property, you might say, that belongs to the bronze. Okay, being able to be a statue, being able to be molded in a certain way. By contrast, if you look on the other side of that proportion, and you ask, okay, well, what about this ability to be substance, this passive potency to be substance? To what does that belong? In what does that passive ability or passive potency 
inhere? Does it inhere in some substance? The answer is it does not inhere in anything. It is not in any subject. It does not inhere in any substance whatsoever. It cannot. Why not? Because if it did, then the substantial change that we're attempting to account for would not be a substantial change, but merely an accidental one. But we know that it is a substantial change. Therefore, we're forced to say, we're forced to conclude that the very ability to be a substance inheres in no subject that is more fundamental than itself. Okay, what does this mean? Well, this means that the material that underlies substantial change is nothing other than the ability to be substance. Or, as the philosophical tradition puts it, the perennial philosophical tradition puts it, that the nature of this material that underlies substantial becoming is pure passive potency. In other words, it's passive potency that's unmixed with any substance, any actuality, or anything else for that matter. This is the reality, what we're talking about right now is the reality called prime matter or first matter. I think first matter is a better, a better name in English. Okay, this is the material that has no material prior to it. And again, its nature is pure passive potency. And Aristotle tells us that this material, and this material alone, is capable of, of being that which underlies substantial change. And it's the only material principle that can possibly account for substantial change, substantial becoming. Now, if you go back to the problem of becoming that I framed for you guys before, remember the problem of becoming said, well, whatever underlies substantial becoming either has to be substance or non-substance, right? And it seemed like we inevitably had to say that what underlies substantial becoming is sub is a substance, right? Can't be a non-substance. Well, how does how does this this material principle that we've just talked about enable us to resolve in some way the problem of becoming? You might think of it this way: <clears throat> when the ancients said that whatever underlies a substantial becoming must either be substance or non-substance, what they meant was either you have to have an already existing substance that underlies substantial change, or you have to have nothing, non-being altogether, that underlies substantial change. What Aristotle has just shown us is that there is a third possibility that stands in between those two alternatives that I just gave to you guys. So you have already existing substance, you have on the other, at, at, the other, at the other extreme, non-being or nothing, in between those two falls the potency to be substance or the ability to be substance. 
And the ability to be substance is not nothing, nor is it an already existing substance, nor is it an actually existing substance. Okay? So there really is a third possibility if you understand the terms uh, correctly. And Aristotle tells us right at the end of chapter 8 uh, in book 1, he tells us something very interesting. He says, this is on page 15, or 191b30, uh, or 30, about 32. He says, It was due to this difficulty, namely the difficulty of resolving the problem of becoming, it was due to this difficulty that earlier thinkers were so far led away from the path of coming to be and destruction and generally of change. For this nature, pure passive potency, prime matter or first matter, having been seen, all their ignorance would have been dissolved. So he's saying if the ancients had seen that the, the nature, so to speak, of the material which underlies substantial becoming is nothing other than pure passive potency, then they would have seen the way out of the problem of becoming. They would have been able to resolve that problem of becoming. They wouldn't have posited some already existing substance or substances as that which underlies substantial change. And so they would have seen how properly to account for the givens of our sense experience that we started out with. Now, just to kind of finish uh, off this story, uh, very briefly, Aristotle tells us that there's a formal principle which gets united to this material principle that we've been talk that we've been talking about. And here we have to make the distinction between accidental form and substantial form. So when little Johnny becomes musical, the one substance that is little Johnny, he goes from lacking the art of music to having that art of music. Okay, and that art of music is what we call an accidental form. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's it's a principle which which when he receives it into himself, it causes him to come to be and to be in a certain respect, okay, just in an accidental way. Now he is musical, whereas before he was not. But he's still the same substance that he was before. By way of contrast, when first matter, or pure passive potency, receives into itself the formal principle that we call substantial form, guess what happens? A new substance comes to be. A substance, Recording has stopped. A substance that wasn't there beforehand now is there. Okay? A substance which only potentially existed now actually exists. And maybe we can talk about this more uh, during the discussion uh, part of the class. But even though Aristotle doesn't go into this, I think it's true to say that this formal principle that's correlative to uh, first matter, namely substantial form, that it is knowable uh, to us 
only by analogy, just as first matter is knowable to us only by analogy. So at the end of the day, what Aristotle has shown us is basically this, that in every substantial becoming, what happens is this first matter, this pure passive potency, it transitions from lacking some substantial form to having some substantial form in it. And through that transition, a new substance comes to be. So when a human being comes to be, when a human person comes to be, what happens? Well, the first matter, or the pure passive potency, that is initially underlying the substantial forms of the human reproductive cells, it loses those, those substantial forms and it comes to have in it the substantial form of a human person. Okay, And through that loss and that gain, you have the coming into existence of a new substance. And a similar account could be given whenever a dog comes into existence or comes to be, whenever an oak tree comes to be, whenever any natural substance comes to be. Okay, so that's, I know that's kind of a, a brief overview of, of these things. Hopefully that helps to, uh, to bring together uh, some of the things that we talked about last time, and then also uh, to go beyond those things and, and to give us a certain amount of understanding of what the first principles, the first intrinsic principles of ens mobile or mobile being are. Okay, so at this point, let's, let's take our 10-minute break. And why don't we come back at about, let's say, quarter till. Okay, and we'll, we'll resume. To learn more, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2020, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>